Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 23 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen. I'm the director of Sem Positive and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today we're speaking with Tom Dawkins. Tom's the co-founder and CEO of startsomegood.com, which is a crowdfunding platform for social enterprises, non-profits, and change-maker initiatives globally. He was previously the founder and CEO of Australian youth non-profit Vibewire and the first social media director at Ashoka, a global NGO fostering social entrepreneurship based in Washington, DC, and the founding director of the Australian Changemakers Festival. As a consultant, he has supported numerous nonprofits, governments, and arts organizations to better engage communities using technology and been recognized with awards and fellowships from the World Summit Youth Awards, International Youth Foundation, Nexus Summit, Future Summit, and the Australian and New Zealand Internet Awards. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Tom's journey as he shares his experience working in a number of interesting roles. We'll get Tom's insights and tips on effective crowdfunding strategies, and we'll hear what Tom believes can be done by governments and the private sector to create stronger opportunities for positive social change. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me, Tom. Great to be here. Excellent. So to start off, Tom, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to work in the social enterprise sector? Yeah, uh, so, actually, you know, it's always a bit of a challenge for me to know where to pick up the story and to try and not turn into a, a massive biographical piece. But I guess I had, um, you know, when I was in high school, mid-high school, I, I really didn't have any sense of direction yes. or aspiration about the future like, like a lot of us. And I was, I was really struggling. I was getting bullied and I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And I discovered that there was such a thing called student exchanges, mm-hmm. which, had been, which was a complete revelation for me that you could be a high school student and, you know, actually go somewhere else for a while, which felt like exactly what I needed at the time. And yeah. so I spent a year in Spokane, Washington, which is about 300 miles east of Seattle. Wow. And that was an incredibly formative experience for me because it gave me it was a, you know it gave me a real chance to begin to identify some of my own values and I guess personality and what was left when all my context was stripped away. Yeah, take away my family, my school, my friends, the city I, I knew and and loved the country, and you and kind of what what remains when those mm. things are taken away. And of course, that's that's essentially the question all of us I think are struggling with as teenagers. Yeah, is uh, who am I? Where do I begin and end? Compared to all the things around me, and that, mm. that exchange kind of gave me a really strong chance to explore that. Um, but then a very particular experience while I was living in the US really kind of set me on this path, and that was being invited to attend an event called the State of the World Forum, mm. which is one of a number of efforts, kind of kind of third sector efforts to redefine a set of global goals and ambitions in the post Cold War. Yep, and it was an incredible event in San Francisco that brought together. Seven Nobel Peace Prize winners. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was there. Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan. As like you know, a real like reunion the um, for the for the Cold War leadership. And I think kind of quite late in the organising 
of that, someone had the bright idea that wouldn't it be nice to get some young people in here, given that we're talking about the future. But they didn't have the time, the budget, the inclination to do a global search for young leaders who would actually be deserving of that mm. kind of an opportunity. Mm. Um, and so they partnered with the world's biggest exchange organization, AFS, yep. who I was in the US with, to select 32 young people from 28 different countries, but all of whom were conveniently located in the US. And so I somehow got to attend this event that I had no right to be at, really. I mean, <laughs> you know, had they done a global search for young leaders, A, I wouldn't have heard about it. How did anyone hear about anything yeah. in the mid-90s? I don't even remember. I didn't have, I, you know, I, I got my first email account while I was overseas. <laughs> um, I, if I had heard about it, I wouldn't have applied because it didn't sound like anything that kind of that I, that I deserved or that I, I was a fit for and had I applied I clearly wouldn't have been selected because there are you know much more deserving young people out there yeah. um, but I, I did get to you know I was invited to apply and I was selected and I spent a week in San Francisco meeting these extraordinary people and I had a very life-changing experience of, of essentially being told that my perspective mattered that my voice mattered that I had a stake in the future mm. and that I had a responsibility to, to, to try and create the future that we all needed and so coming away from that event, I had these kind of contradictory, powerful sensations. On the one hand, I felt really deeply personally inspired yep. and, and empowered. And on the other hand, as I reflected more upon it, I realized that I had been the lucky recipient of essentially how youth empowerment traditionally happens, which is that it's tokenistic, haphazard, and biased towards wealth. Mm. Because while the 32 of us youth delegates there had this seeming diversity, we were black and white, first world, third world, boys and girls, Every single one of us had parents who could afford to send us to America for a year on exchange. Mm. And so what I've essentially been trying to do ever since then is figure out better ways to give everyone the experience that I had at that time. The experience of, being, of knowing that your voice matters, of knowing that you can be a contributor and that you are a stakeholder in your community and that you have the tools at your disposal to make a difference and to create the future that we all need. And that's taken a variety of different forms over the years. By the time I finished university, I founded three nonprofits. Um, all of them with a, with a youth-specific focus around engaging young people in democracy. Yep. The third of those is an organization called Vibewire, which you mentioned, and, and that continues today. They've actually just turned, what is it, uh, 17, yep. which is amazing. I spent I, I led it for the first eight years, so it's now been nine years since I've left. It's wow. existed longer without me than it has with me, which, which is almost kind of weird. It makes me feel old, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> and then I, I spent a couple of years at Ashoka, which expanded my 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 thinking further and in many ways kind of got me really focused on social enterprise as a particular tool mm. for change and, and entrepreneurship as a tool for change rather than politics yep. as the only vehicle for change, which I had been very focused on. You know, if you want to make a difference, you've got to know how politics works, you've got to know how to affect, you know, the system. Yeah. Um, but increasingly I became interested in what are the things that we can do outside of the system? You know, things that we can do without requiring permission, without requiring some external stakeholder, mm. government, foundations, rich people to sign off and fund yeah. those initiatives. And I saw crowdfunding as being an amazing tool that was enabling people initially in the creative industries yeah. to go around the gatekeepers in their sector, which were record label executives, gallery owners and the like, and instead build community directly with the people who most cared about and most wanted to see more of the work that they were doing. And that set off a light bulb that this is exactly the kind of tool that social entrepreneurs need as well to help overcome what is essentially an endemic innovation gap in our sector, right when we need innovation the most. Yeah. And so, Start Some Good launched in 2002. Hang on. Is that right? Yeah. No, no, hang on. What am I trying to say? 2012. <laughs> Something sounded wrong about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 2012. I'm a whole decade off. Um, and uh, that's what we've been doing ever since. 
And so you founded that with, with Alex Budak. And whereabouts were you when, when all that started? So when we started working, I met Alex in DC. Alex had worked for me at um, Ashoka. Yep. Uh, on the, the comms team there. And but by the time we started talking about what would become Start Some Good, I'd already moved to San Francisco mm. uh, while Alex was still in DC. Yep. So we were, you know, part of our DNA, I guess, is that we've been virtual from day one. Alex and I never lived in the same city wow. for the time that we've been working on Start Some Good. I then moved back to Sydney, where I am now. He moved to Stockholm at one point um, wow. with his partner who, who was helping set up Ashoka Scandinavia. I mean, so we just kept moving further away from each other, essentially. By the time we were in Sydney and Stockholm, we more or less literally couldn't get any further away from each other <laughs> while still being on the same planet. If either of us had moved further, we would have actually started wrapping back around <laughs> and, and coming closer again. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I think, kind of, I guess, informed a lot of the way in which we approach things. And it's it's been... You know, it's got it's got its challenges being virtual, but it's it, it's been it's been a real asset to us. You know, it's what allowed me to found the company in San Francisco, and then two years later, without really disrupting in any particular way my ability to contribute or work as part of the team, to move back to Sydney to start my family. Yeah, fantastic. It's really inspiring that you can make it work uh, from other sides of the globe. I mean, you're you're obviously an expert in crowdfunding. So, what advice would you give Tom to to the listeners who are thinking about launching a crowdfunding campaign? I mean, so much advice, but the really, the really key, key, key thing to, to start with is to understand what the job of crowdfunding is, mm. and it's amazing how poorly understood that is, and that is that your job as a crowdfunder is not just creating an, an attractive listing yep. that shares your brilliant idea. Crowdfunding is an outreach project. 20% of your effort should be the actual page, the actual you know, idea, the rewards, the mm. video, 80% of your effort should be how you're, out, how you're actually sharing that story mm. and attracting attention back to that page. But people routinely do it the other way around. Wow. They put all their effort in, they see the job of crowdfunding as the creation of that page. Mm. You know, the to-do list being develop rewards, make a video, write good copy, yeah. find some photos. And those things are important. You, you, you do need to do those things. But they're completely insufficient on their own. Yeah. Um, so it's actually the it's actually the doing of reaching out to people. You know, identifying essentially what is your story, who needs to hear that story, and what are the channels that you can reach those people mm. with your story is what will lead to crowdfunding success. Um, and so that's just kind of a big picture misunderstanding, I think, around the dynamic of crowdfunding. People yeah. think of platforms like ours as being what gets called two-sided marketplaces. Yep. So a classic example of two-sided marketplace is Airbnb. Okay. And if you want to rent your bedroom on Airbnb, your job is the listing. Your job isn't the marketing and, the, and, and, and attracting attention to that listing. That's Airbnb's job yeah. to get people coming to the platform and searching for accommodation. Your job is make that listing as good as it can be. You know. Right, talk up your neighbourhood, take some good photos, set a reasonable reserve price, yeah. and then kick back and wait to see who who then wants to stay with you. Mm. People take that same approach with crowdfunding. They think that essentially the platform is a, is a community of people who just love funding things, which means they don't have to spend time and effort thinking about who's going to fund my thing mm. and where do I find those people because they think that the platform is the answer to both those questions. Yeah. Um, and so then they do what, what you do with Airbnb. They focus on the actual listing. They write good copy, they include both, and then they kick back. And they go, yeah, I wonder who's going to yeah. support my campaign. The answer is nobody is going to support your campaign if you're not actually out there hustling, sharing your story, and inspiring people to come back and provide support. Mm. The world is busy, everyone's distracted, and, and almost no one is hanging out on the internet just looking for things to fund. Yeah. Your job as a fundraiser is to find them. And so in many ways, you know, the key understanding is that crowdfunding is fundraising, 
it's not a magical different dynamic. It accords to the same core rules that always predict fundraising success, mm. which is once again, clarity on your story, clarity on who needs to hear that story, clarity on, on the channels to reach them. And then mm. the fourth thing is, is having a really great return loop mm. so that they can both give you money and share the fact that they've given money to everyone else. So crowdfunding is a great, you know, crowdfunding is that fourth stage, yeah. but the first three stages are the same irrespective of how you're fundraising. You might choose direct mail. You might put ads in a magazine. You might employ a person wearing a koala suit down at the local shopping center. It's the same in all instances. That's just the way in which those fundraisers have decided to reach the audience that they have selected. No one, no successful fundraising is never kicking back and seeing what happens. Mm. I think there's, there's some really great insights, Tom. So could you talk us through maybe a couple of the really successfully funded projects, uh, which have sort of come about from Start Some Good and why you believe they did so well? Do you think they really methodologically followed those steps? Yeah, I mean, how method, you know, how methodic people are in how they approach that will vary, but I think uh, successful entrepreneurs have, have st- often very strong intuition yep. around this stuff as well, around, you know, their story and they, and they have a desire to tell their story. Mm. The people who fail a lot of crowdfunding are those who actually don't want to fundraise and they think that crowdfunding is a way to raise money without doing the real work of fundraising. Yeah, because, yeah. You know, because it, it it's awkward. Fundraising is emotional work, you know. It's not just the actual hard work and the, the time and the effort. There's a real emotional dimension to actually having to ask people for support yeah. and accepting that that means that you, you'll get more no's than yeses. Mm. Um, and so... A lot of people don't want to do that that emotional work. They, they, they don't feel comfortable with it. Um, and they have been drawn to crowdfunding because they think, fantastic, this is a way that I can raise money based purely on the genius of my idea mm. without having to do that stuff that I hate around actually asking for money. Mm. Um, but, but sadly, they're, they're almost certainly going to fall short. So in terms of people, you know, everyone who succeeds tends to have, you know, that strong drive to just get, to get out there and share their story and yeah. tends to really know you know, what it is that they're about and who it is that might care about that. Mm. So a great example of this recently actually had a project, an amazing um, social enterprise in Sydney called AbilityMate. Yep. And they have completely redesigned or revolutionized, dare I say it, the way in which child orthotics are created. Mm. So you have a you have a small child, you're just entering the, the era of like endlessly buying shoes <laughs> yeah. as their feet expand. <laughs> um, could you imagine if instead of having to replace their shoes, you were replacing their leg? As they grow older, uh, um, if for you know whatever tragic reason your child was missing a leg, as, as some children are, mm. um, traditionally that's taken up to six months to produce and cost ten thousand dollars. Of course, by the time it's produced at six months, it's already it no longer fits because yeah, wow. the child has grown over the course of those six months, and then you have to pay ten thousand dollars every year or so potentially if you really want to keep up with yeah. uh, you know appropriately fitted orthotics. So Ability Mate used three D printing to make the orthotic, but their real piece, their real breakthrough IP is around the scanning technology mm. that enables them to do very rapid 3D modeling yep. of the required limb. And so they've literally taken it from, you know, six months, $10,000 to like four hours and $400 um, to, to get these limbs made. So, I, so that's an amazing idea in and of itself, you know, and you think that idea should, you know, kind of in any sort of a meritocratic platform, that idea should rise to the top because mm. it's, it's genuinely, you know, it, it yes. works, it makes a really difference. Solving um, but the reason that they had such a, such a successful crowdfunding campaign is, of course, they didn't they didn't assume that or rest on their laurels. They really worked within the sector mm. to, to kind of 
build up to their campaign. Yep. They didn't just kind of announce on the day they launched. They kind of built those relationships. The right time to build community, of course, is not when you're raising money. It's before then. Yeah, absolutely. And so they spent time. They had great allies. They, they were emerging out of the Remarkables incubator here in Sydney, which works specifically with uh, accessible tech. Yep. Startups you know, working in the disability space. So they had industry connections. They had, um, you know, enthusiastic. Uh, they built up over kind of the previous twelve months mm. uh, a, a community around them that were excited about the work that they were doing. Yep. That weren't hearing about it for the first time in the context of "I want your money." Yeah. Um, they obviously had an actual kind of a breakthrough story, like a story that is interesting that you just but which needs to be told. But obviously, having something that's genuinely like captivating involves yeah. kids, involves you know. 3D printing, like interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, and so on the day they launched, they pushed it out to that existing community that just responded with this wave of enthusiasm mm. um, around their campaign. They raised about, I want to say, $45,000 in the first 30 hours or something. Yeah, like great. just this incredi incredible embrace of what they were doing right at the start there. And that never happens by chance. That's, that, is, that is never fluky mm. when that sort of thing happens. It's always the result of, you know, careful yeah. work and preparation building up to that point and particularly community building. You know, winning the credibility, you know, making sure that people know you, admire you, you know, you know that you're credible essentially yeah. to them so that then when you turn around and say, now we need your money, they're like ready to support you and ready to endorse you to their friends as well. Yeah, sure. So that's, I mean, one of the, one of the ways that people could spread the word would be through social media. And as I, as I said in the introduction, you've, you spent some time setting up the Ashoka account uh, between 2008 to 2010. So what three social media tips would you give to a social enterprise who's looking to, to use it um, in an effective way? Tip one, start right now. Yep. You know, if, you don't, if you're not already on social media, you know, the right time to start was yesterday. The second best time is right now. Yep. Um, you know, if you don't have social accounts and you're about to launch a crowdfunding campaign, yeah, set them up. But honestly, your, your, your mileage is going to, you know, it's going to yeah. be tough to actually get true value out of those accounts if they're just thrown up two days before you launch a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah, absolutely. Because literally people's first interaction will, with you will be that you're asking for money constantly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's better to, you know, I think the principle of social media always is give before you get. Mm. And so spend time, engage, you know, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're a billionaire mate, uh, which is around, you know, accessible tech and uh, child orthotics and so on, get really involved in those communities. Join those Facebook groups. Uh, find the right hashtags. Participate in the conversation. Yeah. Endorse, you know, shine a light on cool things that other people are doing. Mm. Retweet their tweets. Ask them questions, have conversation, you know, begin to build up that community around you yeah. based on kind of that shared interest. Uh, the second thing I'd say is, is focused on shared interests. Now, not always, you know, there's obviously a real role for trying to do work that essentially changes people's minds, mm. that talks them into thinking about things that they wouldn't traditionally think about. Yeah. But that's a harder place. That's a really hard way to start a community, mm. to build, to start a community you really need to connect with people who already share your interests, you know? So if you're a billionaire, mate, you find the people who are really, really passionate about, you know, about, let's say, 3D printing. And one of the ways you do that is you, you break it down into its constituent parts. Mm. So if you're a billionaire, mate, it doesn't mean you, you, you are only building community with people who care about 3D printing for child orthotics. Yeah. You can, there's obviously a group of people out there who are just really passionate and interested in 3D printing in general. They don't spend any time thinking about, the, you know, children who lack limbs. Mm. But if you come to them and say, guess what we're using 3D printing to do? We're, you know, we're doing this cool thing over there. They're going to be interested. Even though child orthotics is not their normal area, the connection is obviously around 3D printing. Yeah. And on the other side, there'll be another group of people who are very engaged in issues around, around childhood disability and who don't know anything about 3D printing. And so, but, and so by kind of 
really kind of thinking about your story and breaking it into its constituent parts rather than just seeing it as a, as an, as a kind of integrated whole. People don't need to share your complete bundle of interests yeah. to be interested in what you're doing. They just need to have a connection point mm. across any one of them. And so, you know, find those connection points and try and find as many of them as possible. So you've got chart of photos, you've got 3D printing, you've got scanning perhaps, you've got social enterprise. You know, ability made as a social enterprise, so that's a whole other thing. People who don't care about 3D printing or child athletics but are fascinated by social enterprise as a business model, as an approach to creating change. And so break it down and connect across all those different nodes, focusing on finding people who already share a passion in common with you yeah. rather than convincing people that they should be more passionate about something they're not. Mm. That's really the key to crowdfunding in general, by the way. Because if you think about crowdfunding, not just as fundraising but community building, which yeah. is, I think, really the better way to kind of contemplate it. Mm. It's a community expressed through money. Yeah, but it's community building. You're building, you know, a community around you. Yeah, absolutely. The way to build community is not to convince people to care about something they don't, but to identify the things you have in common. Mm. You know, if you're starting a basketball team, you don't do it by convincing people that AFL is not as good and they should like your sport, not their sport. Yeah, just find people who like basketball, and then you can cut right to the chase of saying, "How about we play basketball on Mondays at lunchtime?" You know, you can kind of skip to the solution. Yeah, rather yeah. than having to, to start from the the core interest. Uh, and then the third one, the third one I would say is don't get too spread out. I do think, you know, obviously social media, particularly, you know, the, 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 the approach to social media I'm describing, which is kind of more outgoing, which is more generous, and which seeks to kind of engage in multiple communities and be active in multiple communities. So you'll be in, you know, potentially multiple Facebook groups or LinkedIn groups and email lists and all of that. Yeah. Um, is, is only do what you can do well. Mm. So rather than ending up on like seven different platforms and kind of being pretty mediocre or like barely present yeah. on all of them, pick two or three that you think are the right, you know, where you can be really present. Mm. You know, so for, I mean, part of, you know, it's interesting with the, with the show, we really blew up on Twitter in part because I was focused on Twitter. Facebook took a lot longer because I, I wasn't as focused on it. But but I think it's, it, it's better to be really good at something mm. initially. Um, and then you can leverage off that to try and obviously once we had 300,000 followers on, on Twitter or what have you, it was easier to then suggest that they might also want to connect on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, for me, for me personally, in my personal social media, it's Twitter's probably my number one where I build community, where I learn things, you know, where I share. For my wife, who's a runs a yoga business, Instagram's her one. Mm. She never really found Twitter the right Useful. space for her. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, and whereas, you know, I'm on Instagram, but I think, oh, you know, Instagram is just a few photos. You know, it's my kids, it, it's, you know, my friends' kids' photos and a little bit of nature and some street artists that yeah. I follow. And that's all cool. It's all just interesting visual stuff for me. I don't think of it as a community, whereas for her, it's a real, it's a community, you know. Mm. They write on each other's photos. They share what's going on. And she yeah. feels that strong sense of support and connection yeah. in there. And, of course, having built up that sense of support and connection when she does have something going on. She ran an online course recently, and most of the sign-offs for that came through her Instagram mm, yeah. account, um, which is a mystery to me, how you get people off Instagram and actually doing things off Instagram. I feel like Instagram has made that hard. It's not yeah. one of the easiest places to actually get people out of the, you know, you got to uh, follow the link in my profile. Yeah, yeah. Why am I doing three extra clicks? Um, but she's figured out the art for that. And so I do think, yeah, start, if you're brand new to social media and you, you're not really doing anything, or you, you know, you just have a personal Facebook account, but you haven't done anything for your business or your enterprise so on, I would first just pick one and try and be really good at that one. And mm. then when you feel like you've got the hang of that, add another one and, and do it that way rather than the way that people often do it, which is we need social media accounts. And so they set up on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and Pinterest and yeah. Snapchat all at once. And then you come across them in any one of those locations and they haven't updated in two and a half weeks. And 
it doesn't really feel like they're there. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, that's worse than not being there at all. Mm. You know, it's like it's like coming to a shop front and it's boarded up. Yeah, yeah. Um, or it's got cobwebs in the window. Like, yeah, I don't know if I want to hang out here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's some great advice, Tom. So, I mean, you've got considerable experience in the social enterprise sector. So, how have you seen that sector transform over the last five years, and where do you see it heading? Great question. Um, I mean, I feel like it's really emerged over the last five years. It's still early days, but I think five years ago, most people maybe had, hadn't even heard the expression. Mm. Which I think when I first heard social enterprise, I mean, I, I, maybe not even until I went to work for Ashoka. You know, yeah. I wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm that generation of social entrepreneurs that didn't know what to call ourselves <laughs> yeah. for a while yeah. there. You know, I didn't know I was a social entrepreneur for a long time. I wasn't familiar with the, the phrase. I thought of myself more as a community organizer mm. than an activist. Yeah. Um, Whereas now you meet people who are like, I want to be a social entrepreneur, and they just but they haven't yet figured out the actual the actual thing they want to do. Mm. Um, so I do think social enterprise has certainly emerged as a as as something that people are really attracted to. Mm. You know, particularly younger people who do want, who I do think have a strong intrinsic desire to combine yeah. both purpose and, and of course you know lifestyle. We want to be able to earn a wage, mm. take care of ourselves, but we want to do so in a way that is congruous with our values. Yeah. That's a real shift, actually, from like our parents' generation, who have this idea of like giving back at at a certain stage. Mm. You know, you meet people. I met someone just last week, actually, who who'd recently shifted from an executive position in a corporate to a to a not for profit. Mm. I said, "Oh, you know, what in, what inspired that shift for you?" And they said, "Well, you know, I feel like I've created quite a bit of success in my life, and it was time to give back." Mm. And that whole time to give back idea, I think, is is gone for anyone younger than me. Yeah, or younger than us. There's no, you know, this idea that you wait. There's a time later on. There's a time to give back, and that time is not now. It's just kind of absurd on a space. Yeah. To them, yeah. they're like, let's do it right now. Why would why would we wait? And so people are really looking for, I think, strongly attracted to this this vision of companies and and jobs and you know and careers that can combine those things. Yeah. Um, I do think though that in some ways it's become a little overhyped, maybe. Um, it's a little bit like the yoga industry, you know. Like the most part, the most successful part of the yoga industry is yoga teacher training. There's this massive bubble around yoga teacher training. Yeah. Um, you know, with way more t- people being taught to be yoga teachers than there's even remotely the capacity to teach. Mm. Um, and in some ways, it's like we've seen, you know, kind of almost a bubble in the in social entrepreneur training and coaching. Yeah. With a huge number of programs rolling out over the last five months, well, huge. I might be exaggerating slightly. But school of social entrepreneurs which shut down late last year as a sign in some ways of how oversaturated mm. this part of the market had been. But Centre for Sustainability Leadership, Centre for Social Impact, yep. the Difference Incubator, Social Traders, all the great groups that are kind of building out this ecosystem. Um, but in some ways, there's other parts of the ecosystem that are we've kind of built out the kind of training intermediary layer, but there's other bits missing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so one of, the, one of the missing pieces really still is in, impact investment and particularly the, of the more risk tolerant variety mm. there's a lot of hype around impact investing but there's almost no impact angel investing yeah kind of the problem that starts with good existed to to address which is how do we get money to actually like how do we launch new things how do we support innovators and innovation mm. in the social sector you'd think social enterprise well they're going to be you know that's a place where that's going to be happening and actually not really there's of course a very a, a very an incredibly vibrant excuse me, kind of grassroots sector, and yeah. we work with a lot of them, of course, getting ideas to market. But in terms of their capacity to then access resources and capital to scale, mm. there's very little out there. Most of what 
gets called impact investing at the moment is going into very low risk asset categories, largely buildings. Yep. Either build either building them. Uh, either building highly sustainable, you know, lead certified, six star, yeah, yeah. Public buildings or refurbing old ones, uh, and renewables uh, with long term supplier agreements in place. Mm. So both very low risk asset categories, like nice things to do for the like positive, you know, uh, you know, it's great that it's happening. There should be more of that, but but there's still this real gap around early stage stuff, and of course that's the gap that everyone is falling into as soon as they graduate from all these courses. Yeah, yeah. You come out the other side and discover that there's really no one looking to invest in. The kind of very early stage, kind of pre-product market fit or pre-traction enterprises, and so we we do a lot of work in that space now, trying to kind of link up, I guess, some of the great ideas that exist out there with with some of the funding that does exist, and then look at and then think about ways in which we can de-risk it through additional support, training, and through co-investment from the community, mm. which lowers the threshold for your foundation or impact investors. Yeah. Um, but all that said, I'm really bullish on it overall in terms of where I think it's going to go into the future. I think it's going to I think it's going to take over business as usual. You know, I, I, th- I think there is a real, I, I don't think social enterprise is, is a fad or a flash in the pan. I think it responds yeah. to this really fundamental shift around how people are perceiving the role of business mm. and how they want to approach their careers and lives and, you know, the, and how they make a living. And yeah. I think that shifts, you know, we're seeing that, we're seeing that in so many places across the board, consumer preferences in terms of, you know, recruitment and HR and, uh, smart young staff who they want to go work for they want to find values alignment they want to work for companies that have a sense of purpose not not just to focus on profit and i think that's only going to continue to the point where essentially social enterprise almost takes over business than usual and becomes the new norm Mm. at which point when the the whole idea of a social enterprise will in fact disappear yeah because it will just be the expectation just be an enterprise Mm. it'll just be our new expectations for how business should run of course a business should take consideration to wider stakeholders yeah. of course a business needs to be thinking like thinking about a broad definition of sustainability not just profit I mean, we think about you know economic sustainability but how sustainable is our economics on a world that is yeah. radically shifting and is you know about to undergo some real uh, crises no doubt your economic sustainability models are going to look really naive yeah in isolation and so i think that's just going to become the expectation and, and at that point what will pop out won't be social enterprises as this kind of admirable outlier, it'll be the anti-social businesses that will pop out from the norm, those who are not getting on board, who are not thinking in these new ways. And I think those businesses will just increasingly lose support. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's some great insights there, Tom. You've been speaking a little bit earlier really around building communities and you've been involved with, with government as well. So what do you believe government can be doing then to create this more democratic and participatory society? Great question. I've only had, yeah, I've only, I've had little bits and pieces to do with government. I'd say, as I said, my, I kind of shifted to a from, I guess, in my twenties. My perspective was all around how do we how do we force government to do what it needs doing. Yeah, yeah. And then it became, what can we do with that government? Mm. It's kind of why I was drawn to entrepreneurship, you know, because it's all entrepreneurs. You know, it's kind of the art of the possible, creating things with the resources at hand, even if they're seemingly inadequate. Yeah. But that said, I do think there is an important role for government. I think that particularly, I think around the education system. Mm. You know, I think I think we're really going to have to rethink how we teach kids and the kind of core skills that we want them to exit the education system with. And in particular, I think entrepreneurial skills or change-making skills yep. are really core to any sort of successful career in the future. Anything that involves rote learning or the repetition of predictable tasks, yep. whether whether those are physical tasks or even intellectual tasks like writing up contracts, all of that's going to be replaced. But even even routine tasks like surgery is going to be replaced by robots. Mm. Anything anything that can be defined in advance, humans won't do that job. 
Yeah. I'm a little bit terrified now as a father of young kids around what this will look like kind of several decades into the future. What will we what will we still be better at? Yeah. Than yeah. AI plus robotics. Yeah. It's kinda of hard to come up with many, many things actually. Yeah. <laughs> the more you look into that space, the more the more that the things that you always thought would be a fundamental human advantage, like say being a doctor, you go, Oh no, no, that's actually gonna they're actually gonna be like more accurate and precise, um, be the chef. Yeah. You know, all these sorts of things. But I think the one area where humans I think do have an or can maintain an advantage and, uh, and what is, I really think going to be kind of crucial for both individual success in the future but also kind of organizational success yeah. is having a, a, an entrepreneurial culture mm. and, and companies that are you know shifting from a command and control structure to one where every person at every level is a change maker yeah. empowered to actually problem solve and make things better but our educational systems are not well set up mm. to produce that yet you know it's still very focused on in some ways getting more focused on standardized testing yeah. against you know testing people on their knowledge of the things that honestly are not going to be very important mm. and their ability like that at no point that their jobs are not going to involve the recitation of that rote learning yeah yeah and so i think that there's that you know that's fundamentally something only government can do there's, there's interesting experimentations and alternative approaches to t- teaching happening on the side yeah but if you really want to scale that across a society that's that's a, that's a role for government yeah another area where i think government could really help is transparency around data mm. i heard a great i saw a great example of this the other day around, so you know, one of the great challenges for a government in these sort of cold places is making sure everyone has enough heating. Yeah. It's just like just a really fundamental baseline social challenge. And that's always been a huge challenge in New Zealand, for instance, you know, wide economic disparity. Yep. A certain part of the community that really struggles to keep the heating on, and if you can't keep the heating on in a genuinely cold place, that is, you know, people die. Yeah, yeah. And the government's always trying to figure out how to do it, you know, through subsidies, through supporting not-for-profits and grants and so on. Yeah. And what eventually... Almost no one can't afford heating in New Zealand anymore, and it, and it emerged because they they opened up all the data around the uh, around the energy industry. Mm. So New Zealand now has eighteen energy retailers, which is almost an absurd number for a country with what four and a half million yeah. population. But it's because that data is all accessible and open source that entrepreneurs can then come in and identify gaps in the current service provision. Yep, and design companies capable of servicing those gaps in a sustainable way. Mm. Whereas we have no transparency at all with the energy industry in Australia. You know, in terms of what people are charging in different places, we don't know what the surge pricing is at different times of day very accurately and all sorts of things, yeah. which makes it harder for entrepreneurs to identify and respond to mm. some of those gaps. A good example where we do this in Australia is, is mineral mineral surveying licenses. Yeah. When you have the rights to survey, you have to release all your data six months later. And what that often means is that while you may have, you may have been looking for oil and you found no oil, I'm interested in geothermal and I can come along, look at your data and realize that it's a great potential site for geothermal mm. without me having to resurvey, without everyone having yeah. to resurvey looking for their individual thing. So I think I, I think that's an approach that we would benefit from expand, extending across quite a large variety of areas. Mm. And, and one really specific area I'd love to see is any anyone who receives a government grant should have to be transparent around the results. Yeah. Not because we want to – I mean, I think part of the danger is that is you get you kind of tabloid media naming and shaming over – you know, somebody you get these crazy stories in the paper sometimes if someone wasted fifty thousand dollars or something like honestly in a government context, meaningless amount of money. Yeah. Meanwhile we spend five hundred million dollars on a new set of submarines of yeah. questionable utility. Mm. And so I you know, not keen to promote more of that, but I think what it would allow us to do is actually to learn. You know, kind of one of our focuses is how do we increase innovation? And yeah. what you have to accept when you increase the level of innovation is you increase the level of failure because mm. you're trying more stuff out. That's great, you know. That's that's how science works, you know. It's a, it failed experiments are not like take your bucket and spade and go home. They're like congratulations, you've made a step forward. Yeah, you've ruled, you've 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 
successfully identified one thing that won't work. Yeah, and yeah. So I'd love as a kind of sector in general, we really need to shift into more of that way of thinking. And I think kind of the commercial tech world is actually much better at this, mm. particularly in the US and kind of celebrating failure. And you're more likely to receive investment for your idea in the US if you had a previous failed startup. Yeah. Whereas I think in Australia, that would actually count against you. They're like, well, you're untrustworthy. You failed last time. Yeah, Whereas yeah. in America, they're like, well, you've had, a, you know, you've had this great entrepreneurial education. I bet you'll do better this time. Mm. And so I really hope, I think there's a big culture shift there, which is not per se just a government thing. It's a kind of big picture issue to strengthen culture. But where I think the government could help is by enforcing certain standards of transparency so we can begin to accept that there is a lot of failure out there. Yep. And so long as we can access the information and learn from it, then we will build on that and we'll do better and we'll figure stuff out quicker. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's some really, really nice insights there, Tom. So to finish off then, could you please recommend a few books to our listeners that you think are, are well worth a read? So you tell me you're going to ask me that. And I remember at the time thinking about it a couple of weeks ago and then I'd forgotten about it. Um, but I'm looking around my office at the books I like to keep handy. Um, I'm all audio these days. We don't have the same kind of losing out on this ability to scan the environment and go, that's right, that book over there was amazing. Mm. Um, look, there's a couple that are, there's probably two or three that I would love to point out. Yep. One is, it's a book I read after I left uh, Bible, after eight years of Bible, you can imagine it's kind of quite a... It's an interesting emotional experience walking away from an organization you spent almost a decade creating. Yeah. I imagine it's a little bit like the breakdown of a marriage or something. You kind of don't know. Yeah. Don't know what to do with yourself. Don't know who you are anymore outside the context of, of that thing. Yeah. Uh, and one of the books I read at that time that really stayed with me was Long Walk to Freedom mm. um, by Nelson Mandela. Um, and I think that's just the most extraordinary book around like patience on the journey to, yep. to social change and around remaining true to your value, yep. your values under any circumstances, and, and ultimately about forgiveness mm. and how we build community to move forward. Yep. There's actually kind of an interesting related book to that, uh, which I'm trying to find my book just now, written by Adam Cahane. Yep. Um, just trying to remember the name of, uh, that's right, Solving Tough Problems. Yep. And he was actually one of the, one of the negotiators who came in to help he helped kind of facilitate the the negotiations between the ANC and the apartheid government around the end of apartheid. So that's mm. really amazing from a different perspective around how you actually facilitate, how you help people solve really tough problems, essentially. So I couldn't re- really recommend that one. Yeah. Um, and then uh, a couple of books about social uh, change or around technology. One is Walk Out, Walk On yep. by Margaret Wheatley and Deborah Freese. And it's a series of case studies of people doing really amazing grassroots work, often mm. with very few resources, but really around how you gather community, how you, how you share innovation, how you empower people yep. to create changes for themselves. Very inspiring. Yeah, excellent. Um, and then my favorite book on the internet is Here Comes Everybody, mm. The Power of Organizing Without Organizations yep. by Clay Shirky. And also his follow-up book, Cognitive Surplus. I think they are the two best books he ever written about kind of what the internet is making possible. He's a sociologist, so he doesn't approach it with this gee whiz technology approach. He really just looks at how is that changing the way we behave? What is it making possible? And I feel like we were lucky enough, I got to talk to him recently as part of our Starting Good Summit. Oh, and I just fantastic. think it's such a, it was a real say, personal thrill for me. Yeah. Because uh, these really are two of the most influential books that I read kind of as I was exploring some of this stuff just prior to the, the launching of Start Some Good. Yeah. Um, and I think everyone, they're a few years old, but, but, I reckon pretty timeless. Everyone should read them. Oh, they sound really inspirational, Tom. Tom, you've shared some really, really generous insights and advice today. So thanks so much for your time. We certainly appreciate it. And we'll look forward to touching back with you in the future. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure, Tom. Thank you so much for having me on.
thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people, and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below. And remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page, and Twitter. Thank you.